So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 11 through to uh, chapter 6 and verse 2. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. Uh, What is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. And this is the word of the Lord. Do please be seated. And do come with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you've got that passage open, that would be a real help to me. Uh, I always say that, we always say that, because we want to preach to you what is in God's word. And afterwards, please come and tell us if we haven't, or if we've missed something, uh, or if you've got an encouragement from that passage uh, that you'd like to share with us. But please do have that Bible passage open. It's rich and full and wonderful uh, what God's Word has in store for us uh, this morning. But by way of introduction uh, to our passage, uh, let me just tell you about the two seas uh, that we read much about in the Scriptures that are along the course of the River Jordan, uh, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Uh, they are both on the Jordan, and yet they are profoundly different to each other. Uh, the Sea of Galilee has both an inlet and an outlet. Uh, it takes water in and water goes out, uh, and it is alive and teeming with fish because of that living water that is flowing. 
But the Dead Sea has only an inlet. There is no outlet. And therefore, as the sun comes down and the water evaporates, uh, so the concentration of salt uh, and other minerals uh, increases uh, in that body of water. None of its uh, contents finds its way out to the ocean. And as a result, the Dead Sea, there's a clue in the name, is dead. It is lifeless. Uh, There is uh, nothing living in there. Indeed, it has such a high concentration of minerals that it is quite unfit to drink. Uh, And as I discovered when I meant to meet with a a global gathering of Anglicans a few years ago and had the opportunity to swim in it, very strange experience. uh, uh, You float really on top of the water rather than in it. And uh, I also discovered uh, in trying to sit up uh, that this was a mistake because I didn't sit up. I swiveled and face-planted the Dead Sea. Uh, And I can tell you what I had not previously read, which is that it tastes absolutely foul uh, when, uh, and you need a thoroughly good shower when you come out of it. Well, I want to encourage us to see those two C's as a parable of the ways in which a church can be. So I want to suggest that by default, if we do nothing, or uh, if the Lord does uh, not continue to do his reviving work amongst us, we instinctively become like the Dead Sea. That is, we gather to receive the blessing of God, and then it finds no outlet. We do not go out from here to love others or serve them, or crucially, to speak the word of grace that has so encouraged us. And over time, as we take in more and more, but stop up, as it were, the outlet and do not speak and serve uh, in the name of the one who has so blessed us, so we become lifeless. We become quite foul. And in the end, we will find death. It was striking. One of the commentaries I was reading on 2 Corinthians uh, appeared originally in a magazine in the 1960s. And all around these magazine articles uh, were adverts for other churches. I looked up one or two of them, and sadly, many of the stories, you'll not be surprised, but that once vigorous churches had ceased to be. And why was that? Well, the reasons will be many and various. But of course, a church dies when it does not hand on the gospel to the rising generation, to those who are arriving in our communities, when we simply take in but do not spread out and share the good news that brings us life. Well, if we do not share that which has brought us life, we will in the end, corporately and even individually, find ourselves in spiritual death. Listen to these words of the Lord Jesus. Uh, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Friends, Jesus has now been glorified. He has died and he has risen and the Spirit has been poured out upon us if we are Christian people. And we want to see the fulfillment of those words of Jesus, streams of living water flowing from within us as the people of God. Yes, they flow to us and they revive us. They bring us into the life and kingdom of God. But Jesus says, that the streams of living water will flow from within us, that is, out of us, 
in order to be a means of life and blessing to those who have not yet come to Jesus for themselves. In other words, when the Holy Spirit is at work, we will be a sea of Galilee, teeming with life. And the sign of that and the means of it is that we will be sharing with others that by which the Lord has blessed us with new life in Jesus Christ. And as we come to this passage that speaks uh, of our uh, obligation and joy to witness to the one who has saved us, let us pray together uh, that we would know the Spirit's work, that we would be a sea of Galilee and not a dead sea. Let's pray together as we come to the scriptures this morning. Lord Jesus, you loved your church. You gave yourself up for us to make us holy, cleansing us by the washing with water through the word. And we pray today that you would wash us afresh, that you would so fill us with living water, the Holy Spirit whom you promise, that we would not only be blessed but would be a blessing. We would not only hear your word to us, but would go out of from this place and speak it to those you bring in our path and serve others in your name. Help us, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. So do, as I say, have the scriptures open. Uh, We have here uh, in uh, Paul's uh, message to us uh, this morning uh, the obligation and joy of making Christ known. And there are three headings. Uh, and if you uh, have a, uh, if you'd like a sheet with these on, do wave a hand. They did come round before. Uh, uh, I saw Tom going up and down the aisles. Uh, you'll find this week um, there are slightly fuller notes on the back of the Bible passage uh, on the front of those, uh, if that is a help to you to make notes. Uh, there are three things I want to share with you this morning. Our motivation. Uh, why, where do we get the spiritual energy uh, to be a witnessing people for Christ? Now, what is our message? What shall we say when the opportunity arises? Uh, and what is our ministry? What do we need to do? We have then a motivation, a message, and a ministry. And if we heed this word and the Spirit applies it to our hearts and our common life, well, then we will be spiritually a Sea of Galilee, teeming with life and knowing the living water of the Lord Jesus. So first then, what is our motivation to make Christ known? There are five answers uh, in this passage that I found. Uh, The two of them are primary, and I want to address them together because they feel contradictory. And I want to assure you that they are not, and that we need to hear and heed both. Uh, What is our motivation to make Christ known? Uh, Well, Paul says, verse 11, uh, we know what it is to fear the Lord, and since that is true, we try to persuade men. We fear the Lord, and therefore we persuade people of the truth of our Christian faith. And then look at verse 14, uh, where he says, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. So if you ask Paul, why do you keep putting yourself in such trouble for sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus? These were his two key answers, because I fear the Lord and because I am compelled by the love of the Lord. And we hear those two things and we see them here only three verses apart and we feel, don't we, that somehow they are contradictory. And we are in a culture uh, in our age where we recoil against fear in particular as being a motivating uh, factor in making Christ known. 
We really mustn't, because if this was Paul's motive, then we must pray that it will be ours as well, but that we will hold these two together and that each one will inform the other. They will fear the Lord and we will be constrained, compelled by the love of Christ. And these will be woven together as two strands in a single cord. I wonder actually if the reason uh, we recoil against fear is precisely the exposure of why we find it so hard to speak of Jesus. I take it no one in here, and if you are different to this, please tell me afterwards because I want to learn from you. I take it no one in here this morning, if we're Christian people, finds it easy to stand up or to take the opportunity when it arises out of the blue, on the doorstep, in the shopping center, in the workplace uh, or the school, to speak confidently and clearly exactly the word about Jesus and the gospel that you feel afterwards you wish you'd said Anyone so overwhelmed with confidence and uh, takes every opportunity that they never have that feeling of, oh no, I've let the Lord down. I'm so afraid. I don't know what to say. I worry what they'll think of me if I do uh, say anything. Perhaps I'll let Jesus down if I do try and speak. I'm such a mess. Who am I to tell anyone what it is? To follow Jesus. The reality is most of us are beset by fear when we think of Jesus' command to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We know if we're Christians that we have an obligation to speak of Jesus to others. And yet for most of us, that fills us with fear and a sense of failure uh, for the many opportunities we know we have missed. Well, in biblical logic, the way to address all our fears, whether in uh, sharing our faith or in anything else, is to displace those fears with the greater fear of God. And the fear of the Lord is that which drives away all lesser fears. Indeed, the fear of the Lord liberates us and loosens our lips. We have been thinking in this series, uh, uh, the motto of the whole book of 2 Corinthians, that weakness is the way. And it's actually in our weakness that we can discover the Lord's power to open our lips to speak the word of hope that we have if we know Jesus Christ. And it's what Jesus himself said. Listen to these words Uh, he spoke in Mark 13, speaking of the days that were to come. uh, You will be handed over to the local councils, flogged in the synagogues, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, we'll just pause there for a moment. Have you ever been handed over, flogged, arrested and brought to trial? Well, one or two of you may have been, and that's why you're in England. But most of us, that's far beyond our experience, and yet still we're terrified to open our mouths and speak of Jesus, when the worst that will happen to us is that people will speak against us and maybe they'll cancel us in that favored modern technique. Uh, well, whatever we're afraid of, Jesus says, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So let the fear of the Lord drive out those other fears, and then you'll be ready for the Spirit to give you the words by which you can bring glory to Jesus and speak of him. So the fear of the Lord. Paul has just been speaking of the judgment that is to come. And he's not speaking of the judgment that differentiates between heaven and hell, 
but rather that assessment that the Lord Jesus will draw all his uh, followers to at the last day. Will we hear at that point, well done, good and faithful servant, or will we not? Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, Paul says, we try to persuade men. We want to please him. We want to hear those words on the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. And yet, we our passion, and it is for Paul as well, it's a much stronger word in verse 14 uh, when he speaks of his compulsion that comes from the love of Christ. This is his primary uh, motivation. Yes, he fears the Lord, and that day of assessment is coming, but above all, he is compelled because he knows that God's grace has rescued him. Amazing grace has rescued him. Uh, and so he who was uh, the chief of sinners, who had taken his place with the enemies of Christ and his church, and yet had been loved and redeemed and turned around and used, well, now that love that so rescued him compels him to go and share that with others who are hostile to Christ or uh, indifferent to Christ, because the love that transformed him will transform them as well. Friends, is that not exactly the same? For us, some of us know well when we were converted. We didn't grow up in Christian homes. And there was a moment when Christ's love overwhelmed us. Others have grown up knowing Christ all their days. Uh, but as we grow in that faith, coming up in a Christian home, is there not a moment and an increasing series of moments when we realize for ourselves how great is that love that has saved even us? Well, that love, Paul says, that rescued him, so it drives him out to share that love with others, that they too may be turned from enemies to friends, uh, from those alienated to those adopted into the family of God. Hold these two together. You will give an account one day. The fear of of the Lord uh, drives us, but we are loved, and therefore we want to share the good news of that love with others. There are three other things in this passage. I must pass over them uh, relatively quickly. Uh, Verses 12 and 13, uh, Paul addresses those uh, who are uh, drawing all sorts of conclusions about him and assassinating his reputation uh, along the way. And he says, frankly, I don't care what people say about me. We need that liberty, don't we? So many of us are captive to a fear of what others think Uh, of us. And Paul says, we're not trying to commend ourselves uh, to you again as though that matters to us, what you think uh, of us. But rather, he says, as brother to brother, we are giving you an opportunity to see the one who unites us and in that sense to take pride, not in us, but rather in Christ who has saved us. And then you can answer those whose pride is in the worldly things, not the gospel things, not what is within in the heart. And if people say we're out of our mind because we speak like this with a message that seems so foolish in our generation, well, then know that it's for the sake of God because it's his message. And if actually you're beginning to understand what we're saying to you, well, know that we're doing it because we love you. It's for you. That's what he says here in these verses. So uh, don't worry what others think of you. Just get on with sharing God's gospel. Uh, There's an obligation as Christian disciples too. Verse 15, uh, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him. If we trust and love Jesus and follow Jesus, 
And part of following him is speaking for him. We cannot simply avail ourselves of his salvation without heeding his command to go and make disciples of all nations. And then fifthly, uh, this change of perspective. Verse 16, from now now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That is everybody we see. The fundamental thing about every human being in our lives is are they on their way to heaven as those who trust in the Lord Jesus Or are they on their way to hell as those who have rejected him? We no longer use that worldly assessment. Uh, This person is good or bad. This person is religious or irreligious. We have many other assessments beside. No, from a worldly point of view, we learn nothing of eternal significance. But when we heed the gospel, then we discover this is all that matters. And there again, we come back to our motivation, don't we? Because that lovely neighbor of yours who never comes to church and thinks nothing of Christ. They may be a great neighbor, but they're on their way to hell. And you are the one that God has put in their path and will one day call you to account of whether you have shared with them the love that saved you, that it might save them also. Here, then, is our motivation. Secondly, our message. Our message is one of reconciliation. This is the message we take uh, to our neighbours and to the world in which we live. And we're particularly looking here uh, from verse 17 through to 21. Uh, This is the gospel. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. And friends, never was the gospel of reconciliation more needed uh, than it is today. Now, to see that this is the key word, uh, I, I did listen to John's sermon last week, uh, though I was up at Christchurch. It's the wonders of our church website. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a question which is not rhetorical. So I'm going to be bold, dear brother. That's what you've uh, encouraged me to do. I'd like you to count the number of times the word reconciled is used uh, in this second section from verse 17 to verse 21. Uh, It occurs in various forms, uh, and I'd just like you to shout out the number of times you can see the word reconciled in one version or another. Five. Thank you very much, Audrey. That was great. And that was the right answer, by the way. Uh, Five times in these few short verses, Paul uses the word reconciliation. In other words, it's hard for us to miss the point. This is the message God reconciled us to himself in Christ. And in a world uh, that has, it seems to me, never been as fractious uh, as it is uh, today. Think of the divisions in uh, our own community uh, over the responses to the coronavirus, uh, let alone anything else. But in recent years, we've lived through Brexit and Trump and all manner of uh, things that have divided us. We live in a a culture where online uh, social media encourages us to side with one or of two opposing camps and to hurl uh, the um, accusations and insults across the divide. And when we don't like what we hear, just cancel uh, the one who is coming from the other side. It seems to me we live in a world that is increasingly polarized, where alienation and estrangement Uh, Alienation between classes of people, alienation between races of people, alienation between the generations of people in our own land seems, to me at least, uh, to be far greater than I've known it at any point in my life. And what have we been entrusted with but the gospel of reconciliation? 
You think you've got nothing to say to your neighbours, to the world in which we live? You have everything to say. We live in an alienated world and we have the gospel of reconciliation. Now, to be sure, it is first a gospel of reconciliation with God. But as we are reconciled to God and become not his enemies, but his daughters and sons, well, so we gain a new family in which we are sisters and brothers together. Anti-vaxxers and those uh, who have uh, found themselves in great terror over COVID those who support Brexit and those who remain, it matters not because we are the reconciled people of God from different nations, from different generations, from different classes. We are reconciled to God, in him reconciled to each other, and so to the world, a word of peace and of peacemaking and a witness of what can be in this fractious world where there is once again union and reconciliation and acceptance of each other. Friends, the gospel of reconciliation has never been more needed than it is in our world today. And we as the agents of reconciliation have never had a more necessary calling to go with this gospel and to live its fruit in our communities. So what does Paul say here about this gospel? Well, verse 17, he begins, uh, that is a new creation. In Christ, uh, uh, there is a fresh start. There is a clean slate. Uh, A work as mighty as the creation of the world is done in every human soul who comes to Jesus Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. There is no condemnation anymore because we are now adopted as the children of of God. We are new. And when our consciences tell us different, or others tell us different, we say no in Christ. Though he still has much work to do in me. The old is gone and I am new. He has come and loved me and accepted me. And he's changing me to be more and more like him. It's a long work and he won't have finished it by the time he takes me home. But let no one tell you that you are anything other than a new creation of God if you have come and trusted in Christ. All this, Paul says, uh, is from God. That is, uh, we come to Christ because he calls us to himself. It is entirely his work. All this is from God. Or as uh, we read on in chapter 6, verse 1, this is a message of God's grace. Not our efforts, not our works, not our achievements, but his grace, 100% amazing grace that has reconciled us to himself. All this is from God. We sing it in the song, you did not wait for me to draw near to you, but you clothed yourself in frail humanity as the work begins in the Christmas story that we shall celebrate in the coming weeks. The gospel is a word of grace. And then verse 18, the heart of it. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. That is, it is through Christ alone that this reconciliation comes. It comes through him uniquely and fully. And it is our testimony that God has reconciled us. Paul is writing to Christians. He says, brothers and sisters, we know, don't we? Don't you know that you're at peace with God? That your sins no longer condemn you. 
that now the price has been paid and you have been adopted and sealed with the Spirit of God. We are reconciled to God. And what does that mean? Well, it meant that he did not count our sins against us. Sin was and is real. We keep on sinning uh, even though we long not to. We keep on confessing our sins. But in Christ, God decides decisively not to count our sins against us anymore. Sin was real, but it is no longer our burden. For he has, no, he has chosen not to put it to our account anymore. Well, then Paul says something which sounds almost the same, but actually is broadening the scope to uh, make his principal point here. Look at verse uh, Uh, Verse 19 uh, in this uh, passage. Uh, So he has just said uh, of us who are Christians, who has reconciled us to himself. Well, now he says God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And you see here uh, the missionary imperative. Yes, we are Christians and we say, thank you, Lord, you've reconciled us. But now, Paul says, God was reconciling the world, that is the world beyond the church, to himself. That famous verse where Jesus says to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Uh, Read on in the next story in John's Gospel, a Samaritan woman uh, despised by her neighbors, loathing herself, and yet accepted by the Lord Jesus and filled with living water, and her lips are opened as she realizes that even she is loved and reconciled and adopted. And as she shares her testimony, those in her hometown say these words, John four forty two. We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Friends, God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ. He's loved the world. He's the saviour of the world. How can we just sit in here and rejoice that he's reconciled us? When there is a lost world beyond these doors that is waiting to hear of his love for them. That they might have the opportunity to trust in a saviour and to be embraced in this fold. And to know the love of Christ for themselves. And then verse 21. We've not got time. I'd love to spend a whole sermon on verse 21. I won't do that now. You'll be pleased to know. Uh, But this is the gospel. If there's one verse to memorise to take to heart, to pray for the opportunity. If someone ever says to you, and they never ask it in quite such a convenient way, would you just tell me what's at the heart of what you believe? Uh, But this have in your mind, so that this is what you long to share with them. This is the gospel, the great exchange. God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become The righteousness of God. And so all of my sins have been laid on Jesus. And at the cross he becomes sin for me and for us. And for those in the world who have not yet believed. But who he's calling to himself. And as he lays his sin on Christ his son. So he lays the righteousness of his perfect pure son on me and on you. We never get to heaven by our own righteousness. 
but by that which is imputed to us, given to us, attributed to us, placed upon us, that belongs properly to the Lord Jesus alone. Wonder at the words of this verse. Rejoice in what it means for your salvation and then speak it because this is the love of the Lord who constrains us to make him known beyond these doors. Well, finally, I'm out of time, but very briefly, our ministry is that of ambassadors. Notice the contrast here uh, between verse 18 and verse 20. It's uh, really striking. Uh, Verse 18 Uh, God uh, reconciled us to himself through Christ. God alone can do the work of reconciliation, and he does it through Christ, who alone can save us. Okay, that is the gospel. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. Well, uh, then we read in verse 20, uh, we are therefore... Uh, Christ's ambassadors, as though God himself were making his appeal through us. You see the contrast? How does reconciliation? God does it through Christ. How does the message of reconciliation get to those who do not yet believe it? His appeal is made through us. Christ alone can do the work of reconciliation itself. It is through him alone that we come into peace with God. But if I can say this reverently, Christ cannot do or chooses not to do the work of appealing to those individual people whom he loves. No, that work is done through you and me. It's very striking, isn't it? Yes, God reconciles us through Christ, but now the message of reconciliation comes through us. And if we do not speak, people will not be saved and our church will die. And we will be that lifeless, foul-smelling dead sea uh, that has no right to exist or call itself a church of Jesus Christ. Friends, there are living waters that have saved us. But if they have saved us, they must be on our lips to do their work to save our neighbors. And we are given this royal calling of being Christ's ambassadors Paul's language, verse 20 of chapter 5, or chapter 6, verse 1, even more exalted, God's fellow workers. That extraordinary language. When we go out and we open our lips to speak of Jesus, we're fellow workers with God. And we are the ambassadors of the King of Kings. And so what do we do with this ministry? Well, very briefly, we've seen the principle in chapter 4, verse 13. It is written, I believe, therefore I've spoken. With the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Do you believe? Then show it to me, says the Lord, by your speaking of me. And that language of speaking, verbal testimony, uh, is uh, studded throughout this passage. It was there in the first verse. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we persuade men. That is, uh, we uh, engage in patient persuasion of people. We open the scriptures with them as they will listen to us. We urge them as well. He says, we implore you uh, to not to receive God's grace uh, in vain. And so there is that urgency around the persuasive task. Patience and urgency are hard to combine. And yet we must do if we would do a faithful work of witness. We implore you. We urge you. This is Paul's language. We no longer look at anyone through a human point of view. 
We look at everybody as someone on their way to heaven with Christ or to hell without him. And we are those filled with the Spirit, the message of love and peace and reconciliation, who are now commissioned to be the fellow workers of God, his ambassadors, and how we need, therefore, to ask for his help to fulfill that calling. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we read in these last verses, in the day and the time of my favor, I heard you in the day of salvation, I helped you. And so we know that you will hear us now. We pray for any who are not yet believers amongst us here or watching online, that as they contemplate eternity without you and the awfulness of loss, that they might receive this message of love and come to be reconciled with you by trusting in your gospel. And Lord Jesus, for us who do know and rejoice in the peace we have with you. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would forgive us our many failures and missed opportunities and open our lips that your Spirit may give us the words of grace and truth to commend you to this generation. We ask it to your glory.